Hi everyone, welcome to another edition of the BSSH Sport and History Podcast. My name is Connor Heffernan and I'm very excited to be joined by David Patrick today. David Patrick and Ian Fimister have are published, pardon me, or are about to publish rather, a boxing legacy, the life and works of writer and cartoonist Ted Kyle, which is coming out on this side of the waters in the UK. I'm seeing February 2023, but maybe there's a change in that. Um, you can let us know. But David, thanks for coming on and a very softball question. Can you describe how you got to writing um, or p- producing this book on Ted Carl. Uh, hi, Conan. Uh, first of all, thanks very much for having me on. I really appreciate the opportunity to, to discuss this work because it's been a, a real passion project for a few years. Um, right, well, the, as much as the, the work that's went into it, it's been a, a, a collaboration between myself and Ian Finister. The, I can't take any credit whatsoever for the genesis of this idea. Where it really came from is to go back a few years when I was still living in Bloemfontein in South Africa. Um, occasionally on the odd weekend, Ian and I would get together to have, you know, occasionally more than a couple of single malts and we'd sit and watch old boxing DVDs, you know. So, you know, going all the way back to, you know, footage of, you know, Jack Johnson, Jack Dempsey and that kind of thing. And whilst I've always had an interest in boxing, um, a casual interest, I suppose, as I started to watch these and discuss the social relevance of it and the context of it, I found it utterly fascinating. Um, so to move the kind of story forward, um, while I've got a, a burgeoning and developing interest in boxing at this time, my, my friend Ian has uh, what can only be described as an encyclopedic knowledge. Of the of the sport, particularly Britain and America, and you know anything sort of pre nineteen eighty, it's, it's incredible what he knows about it, and he can talk about it at length and with authority over and over again. So, I the the where the this particular project came from is Ian's a, a, an economic historian of Southern Africa, and that's where his professional standing comes from. However, I, for lack of a better word, pestered him and repeatedly pestered him and said, we should work on something to do with boxing. You know, you should put your knowledge base to use. Eventually, he relented. Um, and the way we moved forward on it was he came up with the idea, having read, you know, practically every historical issue of the Ring magazine, um, he came up with the idea of um bringing together the works of this gentleman Ted Carroll because not only as um uh, not only is his output in terms of his writing and his, his illustrations very interesting as a subject and it's in themselves the fact that um given the historical context of when Ted Carroll was writing so the mid-1930s to the early 1970s this is also a very important period in terms of the intersection between boxing and race in American society. And as far as we can tell, he was the only black writer or black journalist working at the ring at this time. So his perspectives, um, not only unique, but it's also, I would argue, eminently worthwhile for study. Um, and once we'd settled on Ted Carroll as our subject, as it were, then it came down to me to, as I agreed to do the, the work in the trenches, as it were, so finding every article that he'd ever written for the ring, you know, scanning it, photocopying them, bringing them all together, and then ultimately what we've produced is a collection of, I think it's 44 of his best articles. Um, so it's really when you know when we describe this as like our book, while it's we've brought this collection together and it's been a lot of work, is 90, 
nine, well, 95% of this book is actually the, the words of Carol himself so that other people can um, enjoy and appreciate his work. So, yeah, it's, it's been a long old slog, but come February, hopefully it'll, it'll all be worth it. And showing my deep ignorance of the study of boxing, how difficult was it to get copies of Ring Magazine? Was this something that Ian had himself or... I'm just wondering, because it's been around for 100 years. I think this year is even its centenary, so I'm just wondering. Uh, no, very good. Uh, yeah, yeah, 1922 was the it was a centenary year. Um, yeah, it was two degrees, I would say, because Ian's an avid collector of boxing memorabilia and you know um, various publications, not just the ring. I would say, off, off the top of my head, I think he probably had about... Mm, between 75 and 80 percent of these in his own uh, editions in his own collection um but then there were there were certain ones which um he didn't have so that necessitated trips to the likes of um the the national library of scotland or which was particularly useful um was the british library in london um so there was uh so there was a, a couple of hiccups to try and find these things but the the, the greater difficulty wasn't actually finding and cataloging all his works. What was far more difficult was to try and find out information about the gentleman himself. Um, because up until at the point when we started this project, and it's nothing has really changed in this regard, um, all you could genuinely find on Ted Carroll was there's no, it doesn't even have a Wikipedia no. entry. And you would occasionally, very occasionally find maybe one sentence or two that would reference his work or mention him by name in a boxing publication, for example. Um, and the, other, the only other source, really, on him was his 2013 entry into the Boxing Hall of Fame. But even that itself is, you can tell, it's, it's really just a recreation of the obituary that was written in the ring. So there was, for a man who um, whose you know, boxing output and creative talent was, was on a, a different level, um, he's he's thoroughly been pushed to the side, unfortunately, and that's one of the things that we want to try and remedy with this this uh, collection. Yeah, and it was funny because when you sort of reached out about the book to inform BSSH members that this great book is coming out, the first thing I did obviously was type in Ted Carroll into Google to have a look, and the only thing I could find was the Boxing Hall of Fame sort of obituary that you know that wasn't about the upcoming book, and it, it's so Spartan. Which is just so funny, yeah. you know, because like you know, for fifty years is that where Grace the Pages of the Ring, ignoring the fact that about ten years into the magazine's existence, it hired a black, black African American writer and cartoonist. So I'm wondering, because he went deep into the trenches and said, "How does his career evolve? Is this someone who starts off with a small column and builds and um, profile within the magazine, or how does his own career evolve across those fifty years?" Well, what we can sort of tell, <clears throat> what we can sort of tell so far is, um, it was it was never ex as much as he applied, he was never accepted to arts college. So it was for a start, he was entirely self-taught in his technique. And when you see his artistic output, it's incredible that he taught himself to do this, and um, because he's very very talented, could work across several different mediums, and from the the sort of early nineteen from the early to the mid nineteen thirties. He'd already established himself as a cartoonist for um, various newspapers in and around New York with a speciality for um, doing illustrations, not just of boxing. It could be um, horse racing, basketball, various things. He had a, a real talent for capturing like action shots and creating a sense of movement. 
Um, and he first started writing for the ring in 1936. And as as you alluded to, Connor, there were some most his first few were um more sort of boxed size pieces, you know, maybe half a page. But very quickly, within uh, within a year, he's producing full uh, full page articles, sometimes double page spreads. So he was obviously um because of his talent, was trusted to to have a a, a sort of standing. Of this of a platform and and the, the and the ring magazine and following on from this so that's about 1936 1937 until his death in 1973 he um consistently has a regular column a regular illustrated column at that in the ring virtually every single edition apart from a period um, in the uh, from about 42, 43 up to 47, where it's sporadic at best because that's the period where he'd been drafted into the US Armed Forces. Um, but over that period, he was a, a hugely consistent writer and the, the number of topics that he covered is remarkable when you read it and it's fascinating to read because it's not just, you know, it's, he's very rarely just talking about the very act of boxing, you know, like X knocked out Y is... He'll describe, um, you know, the training that goes into it, the psychology of fighters, and more so, and this is one of the, the most important aspects of his writing, is he also discusses um, race and American society and changes in American culture alongside um, boxing. And that's where some of his writings, I think, become timeless. Um, and, and I'm very glad that we've managed to bring this out that sort of, so the, the masses can enjoy it. And actually, it's funny... So when you said 36, the first thing that came into my head, because we only did it in class about a month ago, was the Joe Lewis-Max um, Schmeling fight, you know, the American versus mm-hmm. not Nazi boxer simplifying it, but, you know, that was how it was uh, phrased at the time. So even that is like, he's coming into boxing journalism at a well, time when race is being discussed. Well, 100%, you've, <clears throat> um, you've hit the nail on the head. They're going on incredibly well, and it's a perfect way to sort of segue into what another reason beyond beyond the fact that it's just interesting to read and it's and the illustrations are beautiful to admire and enjoy. Um, you touched on it there perfectly is the timing of Carol's career coincides almost exactly with one of the most important periods of not just boxing history but American sporting history and arguably American racial history. Because to contextualize this for any any um, viewers or listeners who might not be familiar with this um, the first heavyweight champion who was black was Jack Johnson. He became champion in 1908, having beaten Tommy Burns. Um, and he, he is champion between 1908 to 1915. And it is no exaggeration to say in that time, the, the manner in which American society was um, polarised over a black man being the, the champion Um led to various instances. I mean, there was literal race riots. People were killed over this. There was things like, um, you know, most cities ref- after, um, refused to have interracial bouts anymore because of this, the potential for a, a sort of flashpoint. And <clears throat> the the main aspect of this that, that is important for the story we're trying to tell is that following uh, Jack Johnson losing the title to Jess Willard in 1915, there was essentially an unofficial ban on uh, black athletes competing for the, the heavyweight title and certainly other weight lengths, but specifically the heavyweight title because in many ways the, the heavyweight boxing championship both then and now can be seen as 
um, you know, the peak of masculinity, you know, the toughest man in the world, the baddest man on the planet, etc. So for that avatar to be held or to be encapsulated and a black man raised no end of um, uh, societal, uh, I'm trying to think what the right word would be, um, pushback, as you can imagine at the time. So from 1915, uh, given this unofficial ban, um, it is not until, as you allude to, Connor, um, it's not until Joe Lewis becomes champion in 1937, it's 22 years later, um, that you have another uh, black athlete competing and winning the, the heavyweight championship of the world. And he becomes heavyweight champion in 1937. And Ted, and this is within roughly about a year of when Ted Carroll first started writing for the ring. So what you have is this, um, a, a black champion, this only the second ever black champion coming along. And at this same period at the Ring magazine, which, you know, described as the Bible of boxing, the, the you know, it was the definitive go-to publication on boxing. As we've put out in this, uh, this collection, in 1936, this exact period, you have a black journalist who is working for the Ring covering this, this gentleman's career. And it's... It's more to the more to the point, which is um, which comes back to the the aspect of specifically about Joe Lewis, is throughout Carroll's writings, not just in the nineteen thirties, but right up until the end of his life and career, he was an incredible. Uh, he was a, a sincere and genuine admirer of Joe Lewis, not just as a boxer but as a man, because of how uh, what he did for um, black society in general, and all of this is covered in the books and. I've, Far more eloquent manner than than I can than I can put across at the moment. And I, I'm just interested. Does his like is in one sense his writing is quite political, you know, in the context of the Ring Magazine's readership, some of whom mm-hmm. would have held views concurrent with sort of pre civil rights era America. Was there ever a conversation either within his articles or in the magazine of pushback to? Like writing eloquently about a Joe Lewis or writing eloquently about a black or African American boxer that you could find because obviously you're looking at his writings more than the magazine. Well, that's a genuinely fascinating question, uh, Connor. The as far as we can tell, the only real pushback you could have ever gauged us from might, might have been the letters pages to the ring. Never heard, never came across anything like that at all. But there is <clears throat> one aspect of this which um, is probably quite telling. Both for the time, it's it's interesting, but it's also got a, a tragic element to it too. You could you could well read every edition of the Ring, which featured Ted Carroll, and you could read all his writings, and it would be entirely possible to read all that and not know he was black, because his his picture is never used <clears throat> um, at any time in the magazine, um, and he's never he's never referenced as an you know an African American writer or a black journalist. He's never uh, referenced in those regards. And even in uh, <clears throat> between 1969 and 1970, there was a seven issue series called "The American Black Man and Boxing," which Carroll put together. And this is probably his magnum opus, his, his greatest body of work. And it's one of these things that's this is probably the most important part that's being recreated in this collection. Um, and that was specifically self-authored by him. Uh, <clears throat> and the, the specific focus of this was race as it applies to American boxing. 
even in the preface for that, which was written by the Ring editorial team, they only refer to Carroll as the most qualified man for the job. Um, they never actually say that he might be bringing his own um, racial perspective to this. Um, so there's that aspect that, that um, speaks to the question you asked. A second one is the fact that uh, Carroll, it goes back to an earlier point as well, Carroll has been so effectively sort of wiped from history or ignored, it might be a better word, or, or overlooked, <clears throat> that even the biography of Nat Fleischer, and Nat Fleischer was the owner and editor of the Ring magazine from when it um, was first founded in 1922 to uh, the early 1970s. So, they're, they're, so they worked together for a minimum for about 35 years. Um, and they, they even co-wrote articles together. In Nat Fleischer's biography, even though he mentions several people he worked with at length in the ring, there is not a single mention of Ted Carroll whatsoever. He's not, not mentioned at all, even though they literally worked together, they co-published works um, on the same under the same byline, <clears throat> and they would have worked in literally the same building for 35 years. Again, sort of pushed to the side in that regard. So just to bring all this together um, to tie in with Carol's writings himself, even had, and this is pure speculation on my part, but even had the the readership of the ring, which was hugely, if not predominantly, or even exclusively white, really, at the, at the time, um, even had they known that the, the author of um, even some of the more engaging socially conscious pieces was black they're written so well and in such a diplomatic balanced and considered manner i don't really think that anyone could ever have had a problem <clears throat> with it and and i'm only raising this point because it was raised it was a, a question was asked to me on a, a podcast last week whilst carol's writings on um the the black experience in america and how it applies to boxing and the history of boxing and black consciousness and all these various interconnected ideas. The fact that he writes about this so eloquently and, and uh, with such authority and with such passion at these times, it should not be thought that his only focus was ever black athletes. The, the same consideration that he gives um, uh, uh, pugilists from the, you know that sort of mm -hmm. ethnic background, he also applies to, for example, at that time, he devotes articles to, you know, the history of Irish boxing or the history of Italians in New York boxing or the um, or Jewish fighters at that time. And he applies the same level of, you know, consideration and balance to, to all his subjects across the board. And it's one of the reasons why to finally and very long-windedly answer your question, Connor, is even, even those... Um, talk, even those articles which dealt with topics directly that might have you know rubbed some people the wrong way, like race in America, he wrote about it in such a fashion that it would be very difficult for people to have a problem with it because he he managed to balance the line. He managed to sorry, he managed to sort of like walk the line um, very very effectively. And it's one of the reasons why I think his writing it ages very well. When you read it now, it still stands up. And I mentioned in the sort of interplay between his illustrations and his writing. So again, with cards on the table that my primary research is like fitness and weightlifting. John Fair has just published a great article on Harry Pascal, who's a weightlifting, I'll do short, long story short, weightlifting writer who created an illustration called Bosco, the weightlifter, 
and this character sort of takes on a life of his own and is often mentioned then in the writing and there's sort of an interplay between illustration and text when looking at ted carroll does he have like critical reoccurring characters or is it primarily focused on the sport itself and who are the new champions and who are the ones to look out for i'm just wondering yeah, in terms of serialization yeah, when he's described as a when he's described as a cartoonist um, or an illustrator, um, it's I, I would I would much more lean towards I would describe him as an illustrator because it's mm-hmm. it's, it's very it's, the probably seventy five percent of of these art like almost every article he ever publishes has some illustration with it. Some you know even if it's just a very kind of simple doodle, but seventy five percent of them are usually accompanied by at least a half page or sometimes a full page illustration in a very realistic style. And that was something he was very very good at. You know it's not um, so regardless of who he's um, and this. This isn't something that he sort of develops as he goes on. From his very, very earliest works in the 1930s in the ring, and like I said, even before that, when he's working for um, the likes of the New York Bulletin, the New York Post, he has an incredible talent for being able to capture things realistically. Um, so it didn't necessarily have like reoccurring characters, but it did certainly have um, some subjects that he, he went back to. He seemed to really enjoy drawing um, Jack Dempsey. Um, you know, especially like sort of action shots from like the, the 1920s. And again, because he was one of his favorite thematic subjects, um, he, he, um, was, he probably got several dozen pictures of Joe Lewis in that regard. But the, the idea that he had any sort of like, you know, sort of like wacky characters or that that might recur and that not, not to that same extent, but that's not to say that he also didn't have. Um, a, a very noticeable sense of humour. We didn't include any of these <clears throat> in the collection because we didn't really think they fit in thematically, but around about every sort of year or every 18 months, he would periodically do um, put the sort of serious analysis to one side and for one month he might just write, you know, sort of like humorous poems or like mm-hmm. more, or a, a rundown of like, you know, funny things that have happened in the ring and they might be accompanied by more, you know, sort of like standard cartoon-based kind of things um but uh is over overall he's one to, to go back to his his illustrative talent is he wasn't a man who was by any means confined to one style or one approach is um the you know whether it was pen ink pencil um and even none of these are included in this but the, uh, around new york at that time he was also incredibly gifted at painting and in some of the race courses round about new york some of the famous ones they had massive works of his, so it's it's it's, uh, it's entirely probable that you know probably what how many people go to the race and you know hundreds of thousands of people a year in New York would pass his artwork without ever actually realizing who who it was that completed it. That's incredible, and yeah, sorry to move into more of the themes of the book. Like I know you have its sections, so there's like the profiles of the great athletes there's there and everywhere there's african-american boxing can you maybe describe i don't know it goes on to different themes but i suppose is there a theme that you in in collating all of this really resonated with the most rather than so take two steps back connor what was your favorite theme to work on is okay well so as a um that the the so that's a, a really really actually it's a great question. But it's a really difficult one to answer because um, 
You mentioned them. I, I quite like, I, I personally enjoyed reading the, the profiles of the great boxers because um, the, I mean, some of the ones that have, uh, that he includes in there, there's, you know, uh, Jack Dempsey, who was the world champion in the 1920s, um, Benny Leonard, who was a, a Jewish boxer in New York at that time. Some people consider them one of the greatest light lighter weight boxers um, ever. Those, those profiles are really interesting because, a thing you have to sort of consider is it's changed the bo- <clears throat> the boxing game's changed um to unrecognizably so now but at this time <clears throat> at this time new york was undeniably the mecca of boxing it was the, the global center of boxing um it's where the ring was based and it's where he lived he lived in harlem and one of the interesting things when he's doing these profiles He's not just writing about people in the abstract. He's he's writing about these people when he literally meets them on the street. Like it's, uh, he he would go to Jack Dempsey's restaurant and sit and talk to him, or he would um, he was on like first name terms of Sugar Ray Robinson, so he could go up to Harlem and go to Sugar Ray Robinson. You know, the man considered by some to be the pound for pound greatest fighter of all time. He could just walk into his restaurant and sit down with him. And talk to him. So that the, those particular ones I found interesting because he's not just given a dry rundown of their career. He talks about them, what they're like in their day to day, like what it's like to know these people. Um, but beyond that, I think uh, I think definitely the the American Black Man in boxing series and um, and the wider um, the wider art of the, the the other articles which are in that third section, which all uh, engages with boxing and race. All of them I found utterly fascinating to read, but and it is especially the American Black Man in Boxing series, the the Seven Parter, which went I think it's October '69 to March '1970, I think, or April '1970. Um, <clears throat> that itself, were that ever collated together, would easily, you know, having been someone who's marked several of them and graded them and whatnot. Uh, would easily pass as like a, a, a first-rate master's thesis in terms of like the level of analysis and how much it brings in. And that was that was probably the one that I found the most engaging and the most interesting. I mean, there's something of interest for any boxing fan in every article, but though the the writings he has on uh, race especially are fascinating because of uh, the historical context and given who the the identity of the author, it just gives you a special little window into that time. And he's um, those those were the bits that I think I got the most out of, really. And uh, on that point, I'm interested. How does he navigate the Cassius Clay, Muhammad Ali name change in the early sixties? Because hmm. there's been an interesting article that for the life of me, I can't remember who did it. Where they tracked newspaper uh, newspapers in the United States and how many of them used Muhammad Ali and how many of them continued to use Cassius Clay within a certain time period, and then looking at the sort of intricacies around that, it wasn't just white newspapers used uh, Cassius Clay and black newspapers used Muhammad Ali. There was a nuance in who, you know, accepted the new name and who continued to use the old one. Is that something that? Comes out in Ted Carl's writings, or it's, it comes out, and there's that. It's um, <clears throat> I'm trying to think what would be the best entry point to talk about this. You were 100 percent right, Colin, when you, you alluded to that aspect that um, you know this this dichotomy between you is who's going to call him Cassius Clay, who's going to call him Muhammad Ali, and that all became politicized and whatnot. A lot, a number of journalists in the ring continued to call him Cassius Clay, as did um, Ted Carroll did that. 
<laughs> himself, though he would occasionally refer to him as Muhammad Ali. Mostly, um, he did refer to him as Cassius Clay. But um, an interesting aspect of this is when Ali was first um, when Ali was first uh, stripped of the title because you know his uh, his political beliefs and whatnot. The Ring magazine was one of the very very few outlets in America which said. Um, despite his political standing, um, you, the the t- a, a title should only be won or lost in the ring. It shouldn't like they basically said the courts. Even if you agree with him or not on his political views, the courts can't strip him of his of his title. So they, you know, saying that they backed Ali in this regard would be too strong a word. But in terms of purely his credentials as the recognised champion. They did support his claim that it, it, it couldn't be taken off him unless it was actually won off him. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the wider sense, the some of the most interesting writings of Carroll's um, and some of the most engaging, I think, are the ones where he, he dis- where he talks about um, uh, Muhammad Ali, especially in the later 1960s when Ali has went from beyond just being a, a sports celebrity or a sports personality and he's a cultural icon. And one aspect that I think is very interesting is even though um, Ted Carroll was always an admirer of uh, uh, Cassius Clay slash Muhammad Ali and his ability in the ring, he very clearly in his writings had um, issues with his association with the Nation of Islam. And, you know, he refers to it as a cult at times. And obviously, as and he, he can't really sort of, and he sees his association with that as like a major distraction away from it but but nonetheless he still respects him as a man and what he's um and what he'd achieved by that point and I've, I've actually i've got norman mailer's book the fight sitting next to me here which is about the rumble in the jungle and one of the things that I've, um i think is incredibly unfortunate is the fact that the the rumble in the jungle which was obviously 1974 it's a, a um, world heavyweight fight taking place between Two black, uh, two black athletes is taking place in the centre of Africa. It's mostly black money. It's, it's essentially it's one of the, the biggest black-centric sporting events in history. And I think it's it's almost tragic the fact that Ted Carroll died the year before that happened because I would love to have seen how he interpreted that and how he saw that as like perhaps you know the the culmination of a journey that he'd been covering for several decades. So when it comes to when it comes to Ali and Ted Carroll. Um, the easiest way to describe it is to say that his views on Ali were complex, um, but that comes out far more in his writings. And um, and, and like I said, he's, he, he never vilifies Ali um, unjustifiably, but he never puts him in that hero bracket that several other people at the time did. And again, it's one of the reasons that I think his, his writings are, are more than worth engaging with. It's funny because when you mentioned 70s, immediately I was like, oh, Rumble in the, I was like, Rumble in the Jungle, because I know Ring Magazine in a d- different life i briefly did some work on it and the illustrations in the ring magazine are just incredible in building up the the format of that but as i sort of uh the timelines don't cross so i have a slightly odd question and then a more relevant question because he had such personal connections and this is driven by me discovering george Clinton's work during the pandemic like did he do any like down in the weeds i'm in the boxing gym i'm trying this out here's what it's like to be a boxer or I'm just wondering when he goes and has those personal relationships with these boxers what's the level of analysis in in this because he seemed to have a unique path inside George Plimpton people don't know wacky uh, American journalist and intellectual who you know 
he tried out for a football team. He tried out and threw the opening pitch at a charity baseball match. He trained to be a heavyweight boxer. He spent a year on the PGA Tour, you know, trying it out to write for the common man. So I'm wondering whether a Plimpton-esque uh, element to this. Again, it's interesting when you mention when you mention Plimpton because he's actually Norman Mailer references him in that book and their their discussions yeah. with each other all around that fight. So it's cool to hear his name again. Maybe he, he never did it to that same degree. So if he went to like a it, you know several of his articles will talk about interviewing you know coaches or fighters in a gym. You know, so he's talking about you know the the smells and the feeling and the the noises and all that. He was never one. Uh, very much a sort of gentleman. He was always wearing very famous roles, wearing his bow tie and his glasses and whatnot. Um, there's not one instance where he's you know put on a pair of gloves. Where I can pick this up or got himself like um got his got his knuckles bruised in any any way like that. But it's more the the but in terms of like the to his writings on the what I suppose you could call the life of a boxer. And I think that's what's covered in the the, the fifth section, is that can be everything from uh, the training they do, the food they eat, you know, the debate, which is quite interesting, is like even um, debates about, you know, whether sex is good for a fighter and whatnot, as um, he brings all these together. And one aspect of it, which all, which I think brings all of his writings about various boxers together, is he clearly and undeniably has heartfelt sympathy with fighters and he sees it he he, he, he described um a professional boxing as the hardest dollar in sports so he is so he didn't so he, he he while he might not have like taken part in any of this and he you know certainly never got in a ring as far as i can tell he un, he had understood and appreciated and empathized with how difficult it was and how hard it was and, and the effect it could have on people and he is one of those, he is one of the few writers, for example, um, in his later career, who talks about in um, aspects of things like you know the cumulative and um, the cumulative effect on the brain and on cognitive impacts of you know constant constant blows to the head, and he compares that with um, other other uh, sort of dangerous forms of, of sport at the time, like American football uh, and whatnot. And another thing that he that consistently can permeates his writing from you know day one. Right to the end is he was acutely aware of how many how many boxers, despite the trials and tribulations of their careers, would ultimately end up penniless, and that was something that you could you could tell in his writings. Um, he he really sympathized sympathized with. So whilst the, so, so to answer your question, Connor, whilst no, he was, he was never he was never the sort of Plimpton or even that sort of like Gonzo journalist who was going to be you know, in in the dressing rooms or like you know he was going to do a you know twenty four hours training, but he was he was in the trenches with them nonetheless, and 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 he and he certainly because he spent his whole life his, his whole professional life around them, um, he really he, he sympathised with boxers and he appreciated and um with what they went through and that permeates his writing throughout. So the more relevant question and Gonzo journalist was the term that I was searching in the dark for. Um, you've already mentioned that, you know, Nat, who's the founder of Ring Magazine, doesn't mention him in his biography. And something I've discovered on reading Plimpton and Norman Mailer and others, there is that like bond of journalists and they'll often reference each other in their works. Is this something that even in looking at Ted Carroll's own writings, regardless of what others are doing, is he referencing other writers? I'm just wondering how much... Oh, involved also, in that bond? oh yeah, well, um, in re- in terms of referencing other writers, he would uh, in his 
despite the fact that you know he seems to have for whatever reason um been almost erased from from history or certainly overlooked um one thing that's obvious from his writings but also obvious from what few sources we can find um you know pictures of him or, or writings of other people is he did have a lot of friends and he was very well thought of in certain circles in New York not just um you know not just in like boxing circles but also among um, other illustrators and cartoonists working in New York at that time and he was a very very intelligent guy and to to go back to one of the things you mentioned about did he reference other people <clears throat> whilst he would very rarely not directly reference the works of other journalists he would reference conversations he had with them all the time so if he was talking about something you know it could be anything you know the like the that month's big fight is he would give his own analysis on it, but then he would, you know, just to humanise it and make it a bit more readable, he might give a sort of anecdotal story about what someone like uh, Charlie Rose, you know, one of the sort of old heads of boxing, had said to him when they were sitting down having coffee the night before. So those is, is quite charming in that, in that, and so he obviously he was he obviously thought very highly of a lot of his colleagues, but in turn he was thought highly of, um, and that comes out. Especially in um, 1973, when his obituary in the Ring magazine was published, and it was written by Dan Daniel, who's another very, like, very well-known um, contributor and sub-editor at the Ring during this time, and the, the two men were very, very close friends. And when you mentioned there, is like, did he, did he quote other other people? Um, it, as I said, he did in an anecdotal sense, but what he quoted more and what he peppered his works for, and it was something that I never really expected from a boxing journalist, especially at this time, is um, it was incredibly well read. So he, he peppers in allusions to, you know, things like Shakespeare and Hemingway and all sorts of, also, and like, you know, Tennyson and all the, all the classics. And that, um, one, it makes the, the writing far more sophisticated than you might assume for a sort of monthly boxing publication. <clears throat> but um, I think it also speaks to his his character as a man. And Dan Daniel, again, who was probably his best friend at the, the magazine, he actually, he recalls in his obituary that when they spent time together, they very, very rarely ever discussed boxing. He says what they actually discussed was great literature. And that was one of the things. And the fact that he was so into like the, the literary classics is really obvious from just a cursory reading of his, because little allusions to characters and themes and whatnot come uh, come out all the time and it it really it, um it make it make it sort of makes the writing uh even even better than you would expect for something of the time and, and makes it eminently readable and as we start to wind down i suppose having begun this as someone who enjoyed classic boxing with the malta now but at the end of it having this deep intricate knowledge of ted carl's career i suppose what was the most surprising revelation in going through all of this? Um, the I'll say, and this only became actually obvious kind of at the end, was based on what my initial assumptions would be, um, he engaged with the idea of race far more authoritatively and far more engagingly. And in some ways you could actually say um, in a, a, a manner which is incredibly brave for the time, he did this far more explicitly than I would have previously thought, as I didn't think this would have, you know, and it's and there's one thing to be, again, because his sort of major work, or the major body of work is this, the American Black Man in Boxing series, and that's published 
69 into 1970. So you could say then that that's coming on the back of the civil rights movement. Um, you know, it was very much, you could argue it's a piece of its time. However, he wasn't just writing about the intersection between boxing and race, you know, when it was safe to do so and everyone in society was doing it. Um, as early as the mid-1930s, almost, you know, within a year of him writing for The Ring magazine, he is publisher, uh, publishing articles which the, the specific um, focus of it is the achievements of black athletes in America. So that was probably one of the things that surprised me the most was the fact that he was engaging with these arguably quite controversial topics um, at a period much, much earlier than, than I ever, um, ever realised. Um, and beyond that is the and our second, <clears throat> and our second thing would be when I first went into this, as much as I'd read one or two of his articles based on what Ian had suggested, the level of analysis and nuance when he's talking about um, society and American culture is far more sophisticated and far more in-depth than I was expecting. I, I went in expecting that he'd have a talent for writing about boxing and that, that would be the hook. But really, as much as he's an incredibly talented boxing writer and illustrator, what gives his is work, I think, uh, a continuing contemporary relevance is the, the way he engages with wider questions to do with, with culture and society. And I think that's the thing that's so fascinating around that era of American journalism anyway, is that they are, are a lot more nuanced than like 2022 clickbait article. Oh, like, yeah. Round one, round two, round three. Like it's there's sort of something Homeric, as you already said, like Shakespearean around uh, the writing. So this is the opportunity to really knock me out, uh, to use a phrase in the sport. What shouldn't I? What should I have asked you rather in detail in this book? What's the burning question that I've fumbled uh, my way around but without asking you? No, do you know, honestly, Colin, I think your, your questions have been fantastic. And I really like off the, I've, all, most of the major parts that, um, that have came for, that, that, that I've discussed so far have all been at the, you know, uh, prompted by yourself so no I think the questions have been great the only thing I would maybe add at the end is is to say who is it that would be actually interested in this book and I would I think any anyone who has an interest in boxing and professional boxing will enjoy this book and I can say that as a hand over heart as a as a boxing fan um, beyond that um, people who have a wider interest in American history We'll, we'll we'll find a lot to to enjoy in it because you know it doesn't just cover the period where he's he's writing from the thirties to the seventies. You know he talks about things going right back to the nineteenth century. Um, but the specific one, I would I would encourage really anyone anyone who has an interest in African American history, especially twentieth century African American history, um, should really give this stuff a, a viewing because it's 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 um, it's revealing, it's engaging, it's articulate, and it's it's, it's got a lot to say, and the the work of or the efforts of myself and Ian, if we can, you know, in some small way, um, uh, get a better appreciation of Ted Carroll and get his, his his work out there and get it seen by more eyes, then hopefully all the efforts have been worth it. Because I think there's there's many a reader could take something from this man's work. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that's something that's come across in this interview is actually. It's one of the most wonderful things where it's about boxing, but it's actually about sort of life and American life and all the, the nitty gritty that that entails. So 
what I'll do is remind people again that this is called A Boxing Legacy, The Life and Works of Writer and Cartoonist Ted Carl. It's being published at Raymond in 2023, uh, February 2023. Obviously, we'll send out reminders for people uh, close to the time. So, David Patrick, I should have mentioned that you're from the International Studies Group. And Ian Fimister, thank you so much um, for coming on to the podcast. And I'm really excited to see this book come forward. Excellent. Thanks very much for having me, Conor. I really enjoyed it. Thank mm-hmm. you.